Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Build Your Network, episode 133. Hey, this is Molly Bloom, author of Molly's Game. And if you want to learn how to play the game of networking on another level, you should be listening to the Build Your Own Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. You have the ambition, the knowledge, and the experience, but still lack those relationships necessary for achieving true success. Welcome to Build Your Network, your guide to growing your inner circle, increasing your influence, and assisting others in reaching their goals. This is networking the way it should be, brought to you by your host, Travis Chappell. What is up and welcome to the one and only show that brings you tips and tricks on networking from the best experts around three days a week. Although they may not all be in the same field, every guest that comes on the show has one very important thing in common. They believe, as I do, that building relationships is crucial to achieving success in life. I cannot wait to introduce you to today's guest, but First, if you have not done this already, please go ahead and schedule a quick chat with me. I would love to talk with you sometime just for 10 or 15 minutes over the phone. Um, Head on over to buildyournetwork.co forward slash FB. And in the pinned welcome post in the top of my Facebook group, you'll see a link that goes directly to my calendar. And there you can schedule a quick chat. I'd love to talk with you sometime. So I'll catch you there or I'll catch you in the Facebook group. And now let's go ahead and chat with today's guest, Molly Bloom. Molly is an inspirational keynote speaker, entrepreneur, and best-selling author. She's best known for her memoir, Molly's Game, which was adapted into an award-winning film of the same name by Aaron Sorkin. Molly, welcome to the show. Super, super stoked to have you on. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what you're most excited about right now? I think I'm most excited about how different my life looks Hmm. at the moment. I pursued publishing or writing a book and kind of stalked and harassed Aaron Sorkin to write the movie <laughs> <laughs> with the hope that it would create opportunities where there were none. 
I was pretty financially destitute. There weren't very many people knocking on my door to hire me. I had a criminal record. And so I just had to get creative and outside of the box, you know, and just hope that that things would change if I could just get a book and a movie. You know? <laughs> and they are. So I'm getting the opportunity to speak, which is awesome. Yeah. And I'm working on another book. And through the process of sort of reinventing yourself, I think you learn a lot about yourself and start to live in a different way. So I'm just pretty psyched for where everything's at today. Well, what a fantastic slash intriguing first answer, because if you're listening to the show right now, you're probably like, Travis, who are you have on right now? She didn't have any money and she was like a felon. Like, what are you doing? Okay, so build some context here, Molly. Tell us like bird's eye view, because if you haven't watched the movie, if you haven't read the book, I highly recommend doing both of them. The movie's fantastic and it's really, really well done. But there's obviously a ton of details that you miss if you don't read the book as well. So I highly recommend both of them. But for the sake of this interview, because I do want to spend a lot of the time talking about the meat of just kind of the things that you're able to accomplish. So can you give us just a bird's eye view of what happened? Like, where did this all, you know, come from? Yeah, I'll give you the quick and dirty. So, you know, I was a really, really serious student, really serious athlete. I was skiing for the U.S. ski team. I was nationally and internationally ranked. I tripped on a stick at the Olympic qualifier. It set into motion this bizarre set of circumstances where I found myself taking a year off of school, moving to Los Angeles, got a job waitressing. It was at a poker game. I recognized pretty quickly that this wasn't any poker game when, you know, the players started showing up and they were some of the richest, some of the most powerful and some of the most famous people in the world. So I stuck around serving drinks and thought I saw a way that I could build a business and build an incredible network. I certainly wasn't going to bypass this opportunity to, you know, get in front of these people. Eight years later, I was running the biggest high stakes poker ring enterprise, however you want to <laughs> term it, yeah. in the world. I was skating a very fine line of illegality versus legality. I stepped over that line. The feds got involved. The mob got involved. I <laughs> lost everything. <laughs> I love at, how casually at, you said that. Yeah, but go ahead. <laughs> at one point, I was dealing with the FBI, the Department of Justice, the IRS, the Russian mob, and the Italian mob. So that was a hard couple months. But you know, and when everything fell apart, which it did, I decided that I, you know, after kind of crying in bed for a couple of weeks, <laughs> I was like, I'm not, I'm not going down like that. Yeah. And so I had to put on the, the entrepreneurial and sort of underdog cap that I think we all have to put on in life and took an assessment of the wreckage and decided that, that I would treat the story like a startup and I would use the story to, to pull me out. And so I published a book and then I went around to anyone that would take a meeting with me in Hollywood and asked, was asking to meet Aaron Sorkin, because if you run the numbers on Sorkin, he's a really great bet in a really tough industry. A, he brings gravity and weight to something, but he also, you know, project for project comes out with award nominations, a lot of buzz and box office. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, pitched him, he said yes. And then the movie came out and was nominated for pretty much every award that Hollywood gives out, Oscars, BAFTAs, Golden Globes. So now that's where we are. <laughs> and it's, like I said, there's so many things that you say in that brief little synopsis there <laughs> that are just like insanely casual <laughs> that are just like, wait, 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 go back. What'd you say? But first of all, I, I want to ask you this because this is like a question. This is like a dinner table question or kind of a question that like you're drinking with your buddies and you like say this. Was it weird having someone play you in a movie? And did you have any like say in who that was? I mean, life's been weird for a bit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> I guess that's so, fair. Yeah. You know, so yes, it was surreal. I was very excited with the names that they were bringing. You know, once Aaron signed on, then all of a sudden a town of people that didn't want to touch this project were flocking to it. Hmm. And so almost all of the biggest name actresses wanted to play it. This was his directorial debut. Aaron writes dialogue like nobody else. And so it was just name after name. But I particularly love Jessica. I fell in love with her in Zero Dark Thirty. Okay. I thought, she was, I thought she was pretty epic. And I like the way that she portrays strength and vulnerability because I think it's important to show both. And then also I like the way that she uses her platform in real life. She stands up for what she believes in even when it's not the easy sort of like the easy, softer way. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, I was super excited, but no, I didn't really have a say in it. Okay. One of the first things Aaron said to me was, he said two things, like after I pitched him, he was like, boy, I've never met someone so down on their luck, but so full of themselves. <laughs> 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 and he was, he meant confident, but I right, you know, it's right. like, fake it till you make it. Right. right like right. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. And then he said, I want you to know you'll have no creative control. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. But at the time it was like, I don't care. Just do it basically. Right. It was just like, I'm just stoked that you're actually like, cause you got some no's before he said yes. Is that right? Or no, is this like the first person you came up to? No, I said no to a lot of people. Okay. Just wasn't and the right fit. They just wanted to tell a different story. They okay. wanted to tell the shiny version of it, you know, and I'm sure I, if I would have, you know, I'm sure I would have gotten a lot of no's too. I just knew what I wanted, you know? So I was pretty steadfast on that. Yeah. Yeah. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like, like, like hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is, is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
Okay, so let's go back to the beginning of all of this. So you are a young girl in a big city coming from a small town in Colorado, and you initially get into this first job where you work there for like two hours and then figure out very, very quickly that you do not want to work there anymore. (laughs) So you literally just like walk outside and then this one just really rude guy just starts talking to you. This is one of my favorite parts of this whole story, Molly, because I find your relationship with, I mean, the person you you call in the book, his name is Reardon. I'm sure that's probably one of the people who didn't say his real name. Yeah. But in the book, you refer to him as Reardon. And he's your first boss. And this is one of the more intriguing relationships to me in the story, because without this one relationship, without you being open to this one opportunity, literally none of this would be able to happen, right? right? But you didn't just like step in you stepped in and took full control. And in a situation where most people probably wouldn't have dealt with this dude, like probably wouldn't have taken. And if you're listening, just for some context, he's just, it seemed like an insanely, just very, very A-type personality, very rude, very like straight to the point, didn't care about feelings, like none of that kind of stuff. And one of the more fascinating parts of this is that he threatens to take the game from you. So you start collecting tips, right? And start making some money this way. And then out of the blue, he's like, hey, we've had a bad quarter, basically, and Mm -hmm. I'm going to stop paying you as my assistant because you make enough money at the game. But you still have to do all my assistant work. And you were Mm -hmm. like, whoa, 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 that's not my fault that your business is suffering. Mm -hmm. I need, you know, to get paid for the work that Mm -hmm. I'm doing, plus the game. And then he basically gets really upset, takes the game from you. Walk us through the emotions at this point, because this is one of the more fascinating parts of this story is that at this point, most people would have been like, well, that was a fun ride. I'm glad I got to meet. Leonardo DiCaprio and Ben Affleck and Tobey Maguire and like all these other people. I'm stoked that I got to hang out with those people and listen to those conversations. Now, what do I do? But you didn't do that. Walk us through what that decision-making process was. Well, I think as entrepreneurs or as human beings, when we see something that resonates deeply with us, we can't unsee it. Hmm. And I knew what I wanted to do with this game loosely, and I wasn't going to walk away that easily. And I think I knew that I was not a favorite to go up against the billionaire boys club, ask them to forego one of their own and to come with me Mm -hmm. as 24 year old kid from a small town who didn't know really anything about the world. But, you know, in that six to eight months that I'd been in that room, I walked in there with the goal to be the hardest working and the nicest person in the room and to always be thinking about how to confer more value, how to upgrade the experience. And it had made an impact. You know, and and I was pot committed in a way like I was already, you know, I had already out, spent a lot of time. In, and I think the biggest thing was I couldn't unsee it. You yeah, know, I yeah. knew how to turn to a business. So whatever, like if you fail, you fail. But yeah. the true failure there is to not to not give it a shot, even if you're not a favorite in your own mind, because you don't know. You know, right. It was the thing that like when everyone in, you know, in Hollywood said, Aaron's never going to want to meet with you and even laughed me out of their office. You're like, but what if he does? Right. 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 What's the worst case scenario? You know what I mean? The worst case scenario, like check your ego at the door and like take a chance. Right. And the only thing that like that you have to fear if you fail is just whether or not you can handle it. And Mm. like we all can. So I was just like, you know, I'm just going to. And I was loyal to him, even to my boss, even, you know, he'd brought me into this thing. And so even when he told me you were just going to work for the tips of the game and work for me all day, I did it. You know, Hmm. like I did it. I showed up. I I was loyal. And then he started getting even more freaked out and took the game away from me. And then I was like, okay, well, he pushed me too far. So I had aligned myself with the right people. And I just decided to start my own game and told the guys, you can keep playing here or you can come with me. Yeah, (laughs) which is just 
So this is the part of the book where like my heart starts beating faster because you built this whole persona around Reardon, the character in the book, your boss. And you're just like, you're reading this and you're just like, oh my gosh, she like something's about to go down because this dude is not going to take this. So if you're listening, basically he says you can no longer run the game. It's mine. You're, you can't do it. And there goes your tips. And your tips were obviously pretty good at the time when you're when you're at a game with that many powerful people. Yeah, I was making and, six figures for sure. Yeah, yeah. And in that one night a week or whatever it was in just tips. Yeah. So he takes away basically all of your income and then says you can no longer do this. And then you basically are like, all right, well, I'm I'm actually going to do my own game and I'll invite all the same people. And it's just like, Hey, look, you can keep going in that guy's game or you can stay here. And they're all like, actually, we like you. So we'll stay here. You made the experience better. You went and got like a, a nice hotel room and made it a little bit more fancy and, and made them feel a little bit more special instead of just like the back room of some club in Hollywood. That's like dirty. And it might have some history, like the one that you're playing at, but it also was not super nice to be playing at. So you made the experience way better, took all of them with you. So this is the part of the book where I'm like, Oh my gosh, Reardon's about to do something crazy right now. And this is what I love. This is why I like this relationship so much. He basically goes, actually, that's respect, Molly. <laughs> like, walk me through that roller coaster of emotions, because I'm sure you had to be thinking that, like, he's going to flip a lid, like, he's going to go crazy on me. What were you thinking during that time? And then what was your reaction? when He was like, actually, you know what? Like, I'm glad that you did what you did. Like, you've graduated, basically, you know? <laughs> well, first of all, Reardon's a bully. And what do we know about bullies? Like, yeah. they bully you until you stand up to them. Right. But he called me the morning after I did the game because he'd heard about it. And he goes, get over here. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I went over there and I'm like, he, maybe he's going to kill me. I'm not really sure what he's going to do, yeah. you know? Like, Because he scared the crap out of me. He was a scary person. Yeah. And then I went over there and he made me go sit in his guest house, like in the back. This like unfinished guest house. And I'm like... <laughs> This is a murder room. Yeah, this is... I mean, how many times did he tell me, like, if I killed you, no one would miss you? Like, so many times, you know? Oh, my gosh. And he came back, and he was like, just stared at me, and he was like, I'm proud of you. I'm like, what? That is so funny to me. I was mind-blown when I read that. And this is one part that they don't really go over in the movie that is really, really interesting in the book. And I wanted to see, like, what that felt, because you're, like, literally thinking, like, I could possibly... I might get killed right now. And then yeah. it comes and then it turns yeah. into this like big, like mentor mentee type relationship where he starts coming to the games that you're hosting and like all this stuff. Was that like a really surreal, super cool experience for you? It was a teaching moment for sure. It yeah. was a teaching moment that in power dynamics, because there was not an atom in my body that thought that's how that it would iron out. Right. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I was going to get the game. I certainly didn't think Reardon was going to give me his blessing. Mm -hmm. Like it was a huge testament to getting really prepared and sort of coming from the right intentional mindset mm -hmm. in that, like you put in your time, you're loyal, whatever. And then when you're at that place where it's time for you to grow, taking that big risk, taking that jump yeah. and the way that, that things fall into place, I had to move the center of gravity inside and just reconcile everything with myself. And when I did that and walked into that, that risk and that fear, it was a pretty powerful place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now you have the game. Right. And you're running it for a while and successfully. And then basically one of the A-list celebrities in the game decides that you're making too much money again. And even though he was probably the one making out the most because he had rigged the game and all this other things with other players that he was staking. So all this other stuff is happening behind the scenes that you didn't even realizing at the time. And then he basically takes the whole game from you. 
just a roller coaster of emotions here. Can you walk us through that? And then again, this is what I love about your story is again, you, you know, most people would be like at this point, well, that was fun. You know, I learned a lot. I had some experiences. What do I do next? But instead you're like, you know what? They can have this game in LA. I'm going to move to New York and build an even bigger game. What was that like? Yeah. I mean, the fact that the game got taken from me was a heartbreaker for sure. I mean, I was again, like, you know, you have that moment where you realize it and like your heart drops into your stomach and everything. I think a lot of people, most people can relate to this. There are those times in life where everything changes in a moment. You lose what you think is everything or it changes so dramatically. And all of a sudden, like you're thinking, how can I ever be okay again? And something happens to me in those times where, you know, I spend a minute and then I'm just like, I get fueled by this, this fury, you know, this, uh, this fury of injustice or this like, crazy determination that I refuse to fail. I refuse to go down like that. I I won't go out like that. And Mm -hmm. it was 2008. And if I would have crowdsourced this idea, people would have told me I was insane (laughs) because I wanted to go start a wall street game. And you remember what was happening in 2008. Wall street wasn't looking so healthy. You know, it was was getting destroyed, Mm -hmm. but I knew that there were people that were still doing well. And I believed that there was a direct correlation to traders, wall street guys, and gambling. Hmm. I believe a lot of it is tied in to the oh, like sort yeah. Of, yeah. huge risk, huge reward huge risk. type. Yeah. And, and I believed that they, even more than LA, would treat those chips like monopoly money. Hmm. And I believed in this thesis. And so I went and I ignored the fact that like this is New York City and you don't know anything about New York City and you don't really know anybody on Wall Street and it's 2008 and everyone's getting crushed and whatever. And I just went and just really got focused on it. And, you know, I brought what I learned from LA, both the wins and the losses. I learned that the reason that people wanted to go to my game and not other people is as other people's were throwing poker games. I was selling an experience. I was Mm -hmm. selling an experience. These people from the time they walked into my game to the time they left, they were treated like James Bond. They were made to feel special, to be remembered. Everything was surreal. I kept surprising people with new players, new elements. I was really tapped into selling this whole experience. And so I brought that to New York, but this time, because I didn't want to be replaced, right? I didn't yeah. want to be able to just be, I was like, I'm going to bankroll it. I'm going to bankroll this whole operation. I'm going to be the bank. I'm going to extend the credit. I'm going to vet the players. They're going to owe me. I'm going to collect from them. Like that way I'm so tied in to right. this. You're no longer right? expendable. Yeah, that's right. So the New York game, you start with a buy-in number that you think is a reasonable buy-in number. And then you go, you know what? Screw that. Let's just 5X that, right? (laughs) Well, another thing that I learned about from LA is, you know, when I started my own game, I I increased the stakes uh, 5X Mm -hmm. because the economics, when you're dealing with poker, when you're dealing with gambling or whatever, it's part of the transformational experience. You've got to have the right number to keep people so engaged that you're going to not only increase the mythology of the game, but increase like their heightened mindset, you know? Mm. And I believe that guys that are sitting there moving the kind of numbers that they're moving needed a bigger game. Mm. So even though, again, you know, people are like the sustainability of that, Wall Street's getting crushed. I believed in the intellect. I believed in my thesis. Okay. And I didn't let the noise in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it became the noise, but you know, we're not so, there so now you're running a game, minimum buy-ins a quarter million at this point, right? Right. So lots and obviously people going all in, buying in again, all in, buying in again. What was like the biggest pot that you remember seeing on the table, like as far as money at one time? You know, I don't remember the biggest pots that it was common for them to get up to five million. Very common. Okay. I saw someone lose a hundred million dollars in a night. In one night. 
in one night. Now I wasn't guaranteeing all hundred million of that. Okay. I was going to say, yeah, (laughs) No, but I was guaranteeing, you know, a percentage of that, you know, the poker. And then I was like, if you guys want to go over that, it's a deal between the two of you. Right. Like I'm not vouching for, even though I knew this guy was good for it. Like there's no point for me to do that. Right. And a lot of people were like, was it exciting? I was sick to my stomach. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is about the time where you're really riding that line of legality, illegality, because you, to this point, and for those of you listening, basically you're not allowed to take a rake on the game. When you start taking rakes on the game, that's when it crosses into being illegal. But basically up to that point, you're just getting tips, which is totally legal. But now when you start seeing these giant pots on the table and realizing that you're having to guarantee a lot of these, that's when it's like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And you describe it as a split second decision was it really like that split second where you're just like, yep, let's do it. You know, it wasn't split second. It was, I was also interested in scaling the game. So I was, I had expanded from higher stakes to lower stakes to other versions of Texas Hold'em, you know, other poker games like PLO and stud. I had expanded to Miami. I was doing stuff in Vegas, like, and I was a one woman show. So it was not intelligent growth. Hmm. Let's just put it that way. And I was getting stiffed a lot because I couldn't allocate all my like resources to determining whether or not these were safe bets. So, you know, I'd just gotten stiffed 250,000, a couple, you know, like some, I had just signed some really big checks that I'm covering. And I saw this just monster game and I knew some of my recruits I hadn't fully vetted. And so in that moment, I just looked at my dealer and gave her the hand signal. So the answer is it was a, you know, it was a split. I didn't like discuss it, whatever, but I, it had been weighing heavily on me and I was in fear. That's where it came from. So at any of this time, were you just like, man, I am in over my head. What am I doing? Or was it like, let's keep throwing some fuel on the fire. Let's like make this bigger. Both. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing this. It's crazy. All right, let's go bigger. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good combination. Yeah. (laughs) How much of this do you think stemmed from the way that you were raised as far as like always being an active competitor, always going bigger, always being better, always like pushing and pushing and pushing the boundaries. How much do you think that played into this poker game? I think that played huge into it, but I also think another thing played huge into it. And that's something that I had to take a hard look at. I don't think up until this point, I'd ever developed sort of a sense of worth that was complete or full enough on the inside. I was so searching for that outside. Hmm. to establish who I was in the world, to feel good, to feel like a worthwhile person, to like self, my self-worth and my self-esteem was completely on the outside. And that's why I chased this thing at any cost. And literally at the end, the cost was life and liberty. And I chose this, you know, I I put it above everything. So yeah, I think the, the good part of it, you know, the thing, the good driving force was being an athlete and learning how to, to get comfortable with risk and being raised by a psychologist who taught me how to walk through fear and and that stuff. And I think the blind spot, I think the handicap was my lack of sort of establishing an an inner worth and really sourcing it from the outside. Yeah. And do you think that was partly to do because of the family that you were raising as far as your brothers, both being who they were at the time, and then you trying to keep up with that and trying to show things on the outside that made you feel like you were worth what they were worth? I think it was a predisposition to it, like just innately who I was. And then it was exacerbated by, yeah, that dynamic. Yeah. You know, it's really, really interesting, Molly, because I was, so I'm sitting there, it's opening day on your movie and I was watching the movie and obviously your name, Molly Bloom, keeps coming up, Molly Bloom, Molly Bloom, Molly Bloom. And you start talking about your brother, Jeremy. And I was like, Jeremy Bloom, that sounds super, super familiar. And then you're like, he was a skier and then he got drafted into the NFL. And I was like, 
I swear I know this guy because obviously I follow a lot of entrepreneurial type stuff and I look him up and I find out I actually like taught an article that Jeremy wrote, like when I first started doing sales <laughs> management training, like back in 2012 or oh, something. Really? Yeah. It was really, really, it was a really funny realization. I was like, Oh shoot, I've yeah. been following this girl's brother for like a long time. And it yeah. was like, it was like a big, like, Oh wow, this is who she's competing with growing up. I mean, you don't quote unquote compete against your siblings, but you do compete you against do. your siblings. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And this is a guy that is just seems like owns the world. And then your other brother is like a prodigy, like as far as school goes and just yeah. a genius with his mind. And yep. then, so you're trying to like keep up with the two of them and it doesn't seem like you can do it in the ways that they were doing. So like you would never be as good of a skier as Jeremy was or as smart as Jordan was. And then, so you're just like, what can I do that makes me the best? And then this <laughs> game is like what it is, right? So yeah. all of this plays into it and we'll kind of get back to that in a second. But now I, I kind of want to move on to into the conversation where you are running this high stakes game. Now you have a debt sheet, right? All these people that owe you money. And one of the things that you said you never do is use muscle to collect debt. Basically, like you're not going to have people go beat the crap out of other people to collect money that they owe you, even though it might be huge numbers. So debt sheet at this point is what, a couple million bucks or something like that? Collectible, you know, three, uncollectible, two and a half, maybe. Okay. Okay. So now this is what we're talking about at the beginning when you got involved with the mob. I love this description of the book because you go to this like thing and these two like just big dudes that seem super just like tough. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then he orders like what, a Cosmo or something? An apple Uh, martini. An apple martini. Yeah, that was so freaking funny. But anyway, but it's beside the point. So they're like, hey, we'll help you collect your debt. And you're like, basically, no, this is something that I decided from the beginning. This is not a way that I'm going to do things. So how long after that until you find yourself within an inch of your life? So we had that initial meeting and I said, thanks, but no thanks. And then they called me frequently for another couple of weeks. I didn't answer any of the calls. And then they sent someone to my apartment. Okay. So someone comes to your apartment, basically you think it's the doorman to bring you like a package or something. And it was not, it was a member of this mob and basically beats you up within an inch of your life says Mm -hmm. like, Hey, this wasn't an offer. Like this is how it's going to happen. This is what's going to actually occur. Like you don't have a choice. Then you basically spend a week or two recovering in your apartment because you obviously can't go to the police or to the hospital. Right. So then what's happening at this point? You basically pick up a newspaper and figure out that they got arrested or what exactly did that look like? So it was the holidays and I was able to just tell my friends and my players that I was on vacation, you know? Okay. And then I'm just sitting in my apartment, letting my face heal, like really trying not to interface with anyone. But I had the New York Times delivered, you know, every day. And on the front page, like a week or two later, the front page, it said 125 people arrested in the biggest mob-related takedown in New York City history. (laughs) How big of a relief was that when you saw that? Like, were you at all suspecting that these are the people? Like, were you immediately like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this just happened? Or were you like, man, I hope that was these people? (laughs) Well, I knew something was not right because I hadn't heard from them, you know? Oh, gotcha. They had just, like, taken a big risk, home invasion, like, assault, you know what I mean? Like, and I figured that they were really going to, like, need some ROI. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I was like, why haven't I heard from them? I was expecting to hear from them right away. And so then when I saw that, there was just like a, a click, you know, I was like, Oh, I bet either they got arrested or there's so much heat that they're not messing around. Right. Right. You know? Right. Got it. So now you have a different perspective. You get all ready to go to one of your games and then the FBI is there. Like this is all happening within a pretty (laughs) small time period. Right. 
Yeah. So, you know, I was like still running games and, and in my mind, I was like, listen, I'm just going to run enough games to collect that three on the street and then I'm out. But mm -hmm. in my heart of hearts, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I would have been out. And then things started taking kind of care of themselves. And I got a call from one of my smaller games that the FBI was there and they were looking for me. And so in that moment, I knew it was game over. Mm. You know, it's one thing to, to kind of go up against violent criminals, but feds, I wasn't messing around with that. Right. You know, I, but I wanted to go home. I just had this like fear that they're going to throw me in jail and I wouldn't be able to see my family for a long time or something. So I just, I don't know. I was like, I want my mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens at game over. You want your mom. And so, you know, I, I'm on my way to the airport and I'm trying to book a flight and all my credit cards are declined. So I called the bank, like, you know, why don't I have, like, why can't I use this card? And they told me that all my accounts were seized, frozen in the red. And so I didn't Goodness. have other than the cash. And I was short on cash because that guy that beat me up took most of it. You know? Right, right. So I didn't have really anything. And then, you know, there was also like a note to call the U.S. District Attorney's Office. And when my attorney called, they said to them, we have her money. She's the target of our investigation. But if she wants to come in and tell us what she knows, we'll talk about giving it back. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, was like, well, <laughs> I really want that money, but I don't think that's yeah, how I roll. No kidding. No kidding. So this is a really, really interesting part. So you get down to the end, you're positive seven figures in your bank account, right? Well into seven figures. And then all of a sudden you're like negative seven figures because the yeah. feds take all your money. And basically what happens is you get put into this giant indictment with members yeah. of the Russian mob because they're at your games, even though you have absolutely nothing to do with it, because the feds are basically just trying to bully you into giving them information on all the people that played in your games so that they could do a bunch of different things. So they're basically like, hey, either tell us everything that you know, or you're going to be included in this indictment and you're going right. to spend you know, years in federal prison because of your ties right. to the Russian mob. So at this point, was there ever a time where you were like, maybe it might be worth giving up that information to stay out of federal prison and get my money back? Or was it never even like a thought? Like it was just like, no, that's not how I do things. It's weird. It just wasn't ever a thought. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I just like my mind just couldn't go there. Yeah. And it was mostly because it's not like I had gotten roped into this scenario or like I was married to someone who's running these games. Like I did all this, mm -hmm. you know, right. like I took the game from someone and then I created a new game and then I expanded and I was running the show. So I just knew I had to stand up for the consequences. I mean, I couldn't just stand on other people's heads. And mm. I believe in my ability to, to like make money again and, I believed I could live through a couple of years in prison, but the other thing just seemed like, like that's, you have that for life. You yeah. know, that's who you are for life. Like you, you sold that out, like, yeah. And it's like, not even like, Oh, a street code thing. I'm not a street girl, you yeah. know? Right, right, right. <laughs> it's just integrity. It's just who you are. And I don't think you get that back after a decision like that. Hmm. There's again, probably goes back to the way that you were raised on that. Yeah. But uh, so many roller coaster of emotions here. I want to ask you this question. What experience through all of this was like the most frightening, you know, like between going over to Reardon's house, thinking legitimately he might kill you between having a gun actually in your mouth from a member of the mob about to kill you that takes all of your money to getting your apartment raided by the FBI and getting flashlights in your face and seeing a piece of paper that says the United States versus Mali bloom and like all these different experiences what would you say was the most frightening if you can pick one i think it's the ties is that acceptable 
<laughs> so all the above is that no yeah. no 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 oh. no having a gun in my mouth and then getting like having to walk down a hallway into a wall of 17 semi-automatic weapons with high beam flashlights that the feds were pointing at me yeah like, those two things were it was a tie okay gotcha so those two <laughs> things definitely a tie then but it seems like, like it's yeah yeah that makes sense <laughs> it seems like the feds thing was a little bit scarier though because that was the thing that actually made you be like i want my mom <laughs> like get me out of yeah. here <laughs> right so yeah well um, i mean the thing is is like i don't think i can outsmart the feds right Do you know what i mean like right. at the time i was still naive enough to think that i could outsmart criminals or something but that was crazy i mean i was coming from such a crazy place i had to do some real work on how to get some humility and return to reasonability you know that was total insanity but the reason that i knew it was game over with the feds is like i knew i was up against a a much more formidable enemy and and Mm -hmm. that i probably couldn't i wasn't more clever than the law yeah you 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 wouldn't be able to like finagle your way out of this one basically yeah Right. And um, also I knew the way to make peace with the other guys. Like you either just, you can walk away, you know? Right. Right. Okay. Got it. Got it. There was a possible solution to that basically. Right. And the other way there really, really wasn't. Right. 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 Okay. So we basically have covered the majority of the story at this point. So I kind of want to get back into some of the more tactical things here. Can you talk about how persuasion, your ability to persuade, the psychology of persuasion helped you as a 24-year-old woman to control a room full of some of the most powerful men in the world? Sure. You know, I don't think it was necessarily persuasion or control. I think it was seeing to the root of of the manifestations of personality. Hmm. So like when people would get ugly or aggressive or an ego, I saw that it was fear. And then I approached it from that sort of diffusement of fear as opposed to like meeting aggression with aggression. Perfect example is when people lost a lot of money and they're like, I don't want to pay. They're super aggressive, you know, instead of getting in my own fear and getting aggressive back, I just knew that they needed to feel safe. So I was like, it's okay. You know, take some time. You'll win it back. Don't worry. And that almost always was able to diffuse the situation Hmm. when they were fighting with each other. You know, I was super tapped in to observing these guys. And I could sort of most times stop an argument before it happened. You know, I saw okay. building and stuff. So it's just paying attention. Got it. Got it. What were some of like the biggest networking skills that you picked up along that? Cause you built up obviously a fantastic network in LA, but when you moved to New York, you were basically back at square one. So mm-hmm. you literally did the same thing over by yourself with no connections at that point. What were some of like the tactics that you put into play with that? I think that the best tactic I ever employed was truly caring about who people are and what their story is and taking care of relationships hmm. because I made friends that I still had even when I worked for Reardon and I was an assistant, you know, hmm. like you just never know who's going to be able to be helpful in your life. And so that's why I think it's really important to, to work on deepening, you know, connecting and then retaining and deepening connections. Yeah. I think as humans, we have an inherent curiosity to who people are and what their story is. Yeah. And that that gets a little buried over time, but indulge in that, you know, indulge in it for yourself because connections are really important. And also like, you know, you want to build a great network, find out who people are, care about it, ask them questions, make them feel important. I mean, it will get you everywhere, you know? Yeah. And it seems like moving to where opportunity is was a big thing for you. Can you talk about how that might be something that's beneficial if you're maybe somebody that's considering moving to a bigger city or moving to where more business is done and maybe Mm -hmm. just like kind of afraid of pulling the trigger? Yeah. Well, I guess you just have to decide who and what you want to be in the world. And I mean, for me, 
I like exploration and adventure. And, you know, so like the two things that I need to know is, is that I don't have fidelity to geography. I have fidelity to opportunity. And number two, which is the biggest one is doing real substantial work on fear so that that's not what holds you back. I think it's important to take the time to kind of get to know yourself and to see the difference between fear and, you know, a true signal of like the danger. Yeah. And I think 99% of the time it's fear. And something that's helped me with that so much is meditation. Just a daily meditation practice has been mm. massive for that. Okay. Is that just like mindful meditation, like just being mindful in the moment or do you say something or think something or have music or? My meditation isn't fancy. You know, I I always tell people I started out 30 seconds a day. I know from sports that we need to create a habit, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's what makes us able to, to move the needle on big giant endeavors. And so I knew that I needed to create a habit, but my mind was a crazy place. So I needed to start out with 30 seconds a day. Yeah. The next day I started out, I did a minute and just focusing on the in and out breath. And then it's taken different forms over the years. Headspace has been an insanely helpful app in the beginning that just helped me. You know, it's like heads, it's like meditation for dummies. And I was done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But again, you know, everyone's like, I don't know if I'm doing it right or whatever. Like if you can sit there and focus on your breath for 20 minutes in the morning, your life will change. That's my experience. And then you said your dad helped you a lot with overcoming fears because he was a psychologist and helped you with some of that stuff growing up. How well do you think Kevin Costner portrayed who your dad is in the movie? And how has your relationship been since the book and movie came out? Our relationship is amazing now. It took some time. It took some work. Mm -hmm. You know, Aaron took a little bit of creative license with the father figure, but my dad was really tough on me, really, really tough. And he wasn't tough in a way that seemed like he loved me. You know, it was like more like a coach, you know, like, and he was so, and he was different with me than he was with the boys. And what I found out in that sort of come to Jesus moment, which in the movie, it's in Central Park, but in real life, it was in Malibu, was he's like, look, I see what the world does to people. I'm a clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. And he said, and I particularly think it's a hard world for women. And I wanted you to be formidable. It's like, and I went too far and I was too hard on you and I, and I didn't do it. My delivery system was not with, you know, like kindness or compassion, but my intentions were good. And hearing that I was like, okay, he didn't like my brothers better. He actually was focused more on trying to make me better, you know, but those are things that we don't always realize until we get down the road, you know? Right. Right. So do you think that that helped with that sense of self-assurance hearing that from your dad? I think it resolved a lifelong question and insecurity for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's so much stuff that I wish I could keep talking to you about, Molly. We're coming up. I mean, we're a little bit past 45 minutes right now. So we're coming up Mm -hmm. towards the end of the show. I have to ask this question because I ask every single guest that comes on the show this question. Do you believe that what you know or who you know is more important and why? I've always learned from other people. Listen, I think they're both, I got to give them equal weight, but I think building your network around people that you seek to learn from yeah, is probably a really good way. Like, unless you're, you know, I'm actually, even if you are in school, I treat each, like I've treated, you know, different people that I've met as a graduate class mm-hmm. and I've learned, you can get so much, you can leverage their experience, their education and sort of jump a learning curve, you know? So I think people, I think your network is probably more important Yeah, with, as long as you approach it from the intention of like, what can I learn from this person, from right. this experience, you know? Because I'm just a big, I'm a big believer in experiential learning. 
Yeah, that's the biggest differentiator for me. When I ask some people that question, I think they automatically think that I'm talking about who you know in terms of like making a deal and becoming business partners with somebody. But that's exactly the way that I've looked at it. And I liken it to like if you're in line at an amusement park or whatever, and you're going to go get in line for Space Mountain at Disneyland, right? And you go to the bathroom and your buddies go ahead and stand in line. And then a few minutes later, you come out and they're like, you know, 20 people ahead of the line. And then they're like, oh, hey, Molly, come on up here with us. And now Mm -hmm. you get to skip past those 20, 25 people that they've you know, been in line waiting for. That's kind of like what networking is to me because you can, because you can do it the other way, right? Like you can bootstrap it for sure, but you're going to have to wait in line like those other people because you're going to have to take those steps just like everybody else did. Whereas if you have somebody that's 20 people ahead that have already taken those steps and waited in that line that can call you up and be like, Hey, this is how it's done. Look at it this way. Now you're skipping rungs on the ladder. You're shortening totally. that runway so much. Absolutely. So like I said, I wish I had another hour to talk to you about some of this <laughs> stuff, but we simply are running out of time here. So let's go ahead and move on to the last segment, something I like to call the random round. Just a few really quick random questions with some quick random answers. You ready? Yep. This is the random round. What profession other than your own do you think it would be fun to attempt? Lawyer. Lawyer, what you were going to do originally, huh? (laughs) If you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? Einstein, because of the intersection of science and spirituality. How do you like to consume content, books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, or videos? Books. What is a book that you would recommend to the audience? Untethered Soul. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. Wake up around five. I meditate for about 20 minutes, I go to a 12-step program where I get, where I sit in a room with some people that are homeless, some people that are surgeons, and I get a lot of perspective and solution. And then I go to hot yoga for an hour, and then I try to spend the rest of the day staying in that (laughs) (laughs) What is your go-to pump-up song? Oh, it depends on what I'm getting pumped up for. Let's say a workout. I don't know. It changes all the time. I don't have like a go-to. Okay. No worries. I'll tell you what I listen to before I go on stage and speak to like a million people. Yeah, let's hear that. <laughs> I listen to Eminem. Would any song in particular, just Eminem? Just like that eight mile soundtrack, you know? Yes. All right. There's a good one. Okay. So what is something that you are just not very good at, Molly? I'm not very good at cooking, mm. but I'm getting better. Hey, I can make a mean grilled cheese sandwich and pour cereal. So that's about it. It's the extent of my cooking knowledge. Really quick. This is one question that I forgot to ask during the interview and I really want to hear the answer to it. So cut back here for a second. You know, I've been trying to get you on the show for a while. You're one of the best networkers that that I've ever talked to. And you're able to build an incredibly powerful network uh, while you're running the game. Since you've stopped, have you been able to keep that network intact at all? You know, I've put... Use a completely different network. I've created, built a completely different network. I am more, much more interested now in, you know, a different, like, I don't need to put together poker games, but, but when I needed to put together a movie, Mm -hmm. I could, I could call and I could leverage the people that I met that are in the movie business, you know, Mm -hmm. perfect. Now I'm interested in, in sort of impact. And so I've started to meet with the governors and, you know, different people in politics and then also speech coaches. And cause you know, I like, I'm speaking. And, and so it's just, I think once you build a network, you learn how to do it and you can really kind of do it anywhere. Got it. Got it. Well, cool. As we get everything wrapped up here, Molly, what is one place online where we will be able to find you the most? Probably Instagram or Twitter. Okay. And is that just at Molly Bloom? 
No, it's at I'm Molly Bloom. At I'm Molly Bloom on Instagram and Twitter. Please go follow Molly's stuff. If you have not watched the movie, start there because it's awesome and it will drink you enough to go pick up a copy of her book, which is also awesome. Molly, seriously, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know that you have a ton of stuff going on, so I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Okay, it's been great to be on, Kevin. That's all for this episode of Build Your Network. Your next step is to visit byn.media slash FB to join in on our Facebook group for more personal engagement, proven strategies and tactics to reach your ultimate goals. That's byn.media forward slash FB. Remember, you're only one connection away. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.